The fifth chapter of the book of Romans is our text tonight. Now, this is one of the most important theological passages, and it's one of the most difficult to understand. Extremely difficult to teach because it just um, sounds like something that it really doesn't mean. And uh, so you're going to need to really, um, you know, put a little thought into this and use your worksheet. And I uh, promise you, if you're wondering about what's going to happen when you leave, you're going to get lost in this one. This is tough. And um, sure is tempting, you know, sometime to get to these difficult passages and slide around them, you know, something else. But there's no, no passage more important theologically than the, ver the passage that begins at verse 12. I'm going to read it all um, now. I'm going to read it as I go along, try to teach it verse for verse. There's a little nursery rhyme that uh, we learned when we were children. Everybody here probably knows that nursery rhyme. Um, my little friends here on the front row, I bet you know it. Humpty Dumpty, say it with me. Humpty Dumpty, set, they don't know it. <laughs> How about my little friends here on this one? <laughs> Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now I venture to say that an image is drawn in your mind other than the guy, than the image that this guy, this nut up there, <laughs> quoting nursery rhymes. Somebody just turned it on TV and... Uh, Thought, I thought, and this passed right by, I thought we were having church. <laughs> what is the image? What when you've heard, seen that nursery rhyme illustrated, how is Humpty Dumpty illustrated? What is he? An egg. And so I'm sure that you already have an image of an egg in your mind if you know the nursery rhyme. Where'd you get that image? There's nothing in the nursery rhyme to suggest that. Now, I don't know the origin of this nursery rhyme. There are some people who have suggested the origins of nursery rhymes, suggest, and the most believable one about Humpty Dumpty was that it originated in the mind of a child in England who was learning his ABCs by the use of an English primer. Now, in the day when the nursery rhyme was written, the children learned their ABCs by, the, by a an English primer, and in this primer <clears throat> there's a couplet that teaches the A and the X, and the couplet goes something like this. In Adam's fall we did sin all. Xerxes, now Xerxes starts with an X instead of a Z, X-E-R-X-E-S. Xerxes the Great did die. And so will you and I. Adam, in Adam's fall, we did sin all. Xerxes the great did die. So must you and I. Now it is not an egg that fell, but a man. And the result of that fall was sin and death. And all the king's horses 
and all the king's men couldn't put us together again. Now this passage, like no other passage, teaches guilt and grace and the fall. Adam sat on a wall of innocency and fellowship and he fell. And that fall of Adam has affected the human race for all time. Now this passage becomes a little easier to understand when we kind of get a little um, understanding of what Paul is doing here. In the first three chapters, the Apostle Paul is talking about condemnation. But the latter part of chapter 3, chapter 4, and chapter 5, he talks about what we have in Christ. And he comes to sum, to, to sum up these two important sections of Scripture. And he weaves together these two great truths of condemnation and the fall and justification life after the fall. For example, just as by one man sin entered the world and death by sin, death spread to all for all have sinned. Now he's talking about the entrance of sin and death in the world. Now sin has not always been here and death has not always been here. If we had instant uh, slow motion replay of the primal event and, and stop action, we could, you know, touch all the bases very carefully. It'd be something like this. The first frame, there is man, Adam, created in the image of God and placed in the garden to till and to tend it. In the second frame, there is Adam who has been given dominion over all the creation and he names all the animals. There is the third frame, that even though Adam has all of this wonder of the, of the primal garden and the uh, first event, he has all the wonder of that. He's not fulfilled. God knows it. It's not good for man to be alone. So he puts him to sleep and creates out of him a helpmate. Frame four, Adam falls from the wall of innocency and, and fellowship, and he willfully and knowingly disobeys God. Now let me read again that verse of Scripture that's found in the second chapter of the book of Genesis. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you eat from it. You shall surely die and here's where this stop-action, slow-motion replay begins to get a little confusing because Adam didn't die. He goes on living after he disobeyed God willingly and knowingly. Now what's the problem here? What's the contradiction and the conflict? Well, the answer to that is easy. When God speaks of death, He's not just talking about physical death. Anytime you find the word death in Scripture, you know that it is always it always relates to separation. Physical death is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body. That's why we say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And we, we take the body and place it in the grave, but we know the essential self is with the Father, with the Lord. 
So that physical death is the separation of the soul and spirit from the body, but spiritual death is the separation of the soul and spirit from God. And so he really did die that day because he's talking about spiritual death. For the moment he disobeyed God, there was the separation of the soul and spirit from the God who created him. And he began to die, and he died later physically. Now, Paul tells the result of that death in verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, does your Bible have a little dash out from that? Does yours have that? This is yes. If it has a little dash out from that, then it's like mine, and it means that this is, an, this is a thought that he doesn't continue. Strangely enough, the Apostle Paul makes this statement about the entrance of sin and death in the world, and then he just stops without completing it. That's an incomplete sentence there. Now what happens here? What, is he talking about the fact that in the result, in, in Adam's sin, all of us is in Adam have sinned? Like someone suggested that if you were high up on a mountain and you camped on this mountain and, and you, out beside your camp runs this beautiful, clear spring or stream, and you go out and you... Um, okay? You go out and you're going to drink from that stream and it, as far as you can see, is pure and clean and uncontaminated. But a mile up the mountain, there's another camp you don't know about. And so somebody in that camp puts something in that stream that pollutes it and contaminates it so that everybody from there on down, all the way down the mountain, as soon as they drink from that stream, they are contaminated and and it's polluted. Now there are some who suggest that Adam, because he's at the head of the human race and because he sinned, has corrupted the human race for all time and all of us are sinners because we are part of that human race. Is that what he means? Well, all of a sudden, without answering that question, Adam takes off, I mean, Rome, Paul takes off in Romans on, a, on, a, on another... Um, on another road. Look at verse 13. Somebody might ask, is it true that before there was the law, there was sin? I mean, if you didn't have a law, how could you break the law? I mean, if there wasn't a law, and this period of time is pre-law, pre-Moses, it was their sin there, since there was no law. Well, he answers that question. Now look at verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world. But sin, if you got a pencil, I want you to scratch out the second word sin and put the word transgression. But transgression is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam unto Moses, 
even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, put a period there. Now was there sin in the world before there was a law? Well, his answer is yes. And this is why. Let me see if I can illustrate. I heard a preacher say one time as he was trying to exegete this passage of Scripture, he said when he was a kid he, he used to deliver papers. And he had to go around this block. He hated delivering papers. And he had to go around this big block and start down the street tossing papers. And he said he, he, um, he knew that he could cut across this guy's yard, this guy's lawn, and save him about a hundred steps. And so he did. He said, I knew that I was doing wrong. I was, I was guilty. I, I knew I wasn't supposed to do that, but he said, I did anyway. He said, I'd cut across this guy's lawn and, and drag in my papers along behind me. And he said, I did that day after day, even though I knew that it was, it was the wrong thing to do. And he said, about the middle of the summer, I had me a little trail, you know, in this guy's yard. He said, one day I got my papers and I started to cut across the lawn and there was a big sign, keep off the grass. And he said, all of a sudden I was confronted with the written law that I knew I'd already broken. He said, I just went ahead and did it, in it, did it, did it again, did it anyway. Cut across the lawn. He said, I was met about midway on that lawn by this guy who gave me a piece of his mind. He said, now watch this. He said, all of a sudden, I discovered the difference in the sin that is in the conscience and transgression against the law. I discovered the difference in the sin that is in the conscience and a transgression against the law. Now, was there sin until God wrote out the law? Yes, there was. How do you know? Because death was there. Death reigned. And if you'll read that Old Testament account, that Genesis account, it just talks about, it just uses that word over and over again. So-and-so lived 350 years and died. So-and-so lived 440 years and died. For death reigned between Adam and Moses, even though there was no transgression of, uh, of the law like Adam transgressed against it. And Adam transgressed against the direct command of God not to eat of the tree in the midst of the garden. But there was sin even though there was not transgression like Adam's transgression. Now look at verses 13 and 14 again. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin, but transgression is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam. Now, with a great big circle, I want you to circle this next phrase, because that is a hinge, a turning point in this passage. Who is a type of him who was to come. Now, the who is a type is Adam, and who is to come is the second Adam, who is Jesus Christ. So that he is a type, Adam is a type of Christ. Berkeley translates it like this, 
He is a foreshadow of the coming one. The Amplified Bible has it best. This man is a prefigure in reverse of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to put that down in the margin of your Bible. Adam is a prefigure in reverse of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he goes on then to show a comparison and a contrast between what Adam was, who Adam was, and what he did in comparison and contrast to who Jesus was and what Jesus did. And there are three contrasts, two comparisons. Now I want you to pick up your Bible and just read with me and watch carefully verses 15 through 17. But the free gift is not like the transgression. See the comparison, the contrast? But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who had sinned, For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Christ Jesus. Tremendous statement. I'm just sitting in there watching tonight the uh, film on Mormonism. And I, uh, I looked at this film here of this humongous, tremendous cathedral, and he talks about the fact that the uh, Polynesian Cultural Center in Hawaii that many of you visited is the number one tourist attraction in Southeast Asia, and these folks are, are uh, gaining... Um, four times faster than any other major religious group in the world, and there are 14 people in there, kind of sitting around scattered watching this thing. And I thought as I um, looked in the backs, you know, head, the back of the heads of those 14 folks who come to everything in church, prayer, in church training, and it's something that we got 14 people who are interested in knowing about the group of people that's conquering the world. And then I thought, we're going to go in here and I'm going to open up this Bible and I'm going to begin to teach the greatest passage on theology, in theology. And we're going to have a lot of people who have absolutely no concept of what I'm talking about. And yet the Mormons know every detail of their doctrine. Get your Bible and get into this with me right here. There is a contrast of result. Now what's this contrast of result? What Adam did brought condemnation. This is the result of Adam's sin, condemnation. But the result of Jesus' death is justification. Now remember he's summing up all that he's talked about before when he's talked about condemnation in the fall and justification, life after the fall. And, and we get all hung up on how we are condemned. Are we condemned because Adam sinned? And we get hung up on that. And we miss the point. And the point is that we have justification in Jesus Christ. 
And people are always worked up about the fact that God would be a God who would allow somebody to go to hell. I can't believe in a God who would allow people to go to hell, they say, and miss the point that the whole point of the message is that because of what Jesus has done, He's made justification available to everyone. God is not willing that any should perish. And there is the second contrast, and it's a contrast in quantity. He's saying the, the enormity of sin is this, that death reigns. And sin is not just some little you know, stump, stumping of the toe, you know. Made a little mistake, I'll, I'll correct it. The result of sins is this, that it, it causes death, physical and spiritual death. But the result, the, the contrast in quantity of what Jesus did is that we reign in life. Now notice the contrast. In condemnation as the result of the fall, death reigns. But as the result of what Christ do, do, did in, in the cross, we reign in life. Not just when we get to heaven, in life, you see. And then there's a contrast of certainty, the absolute certainty of death and the absolute payment of sin. There's no question about it. He paid it all. And then he comes with comparison. Verse 18, look at this. So then as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The comparison of the condemnation that came to all men through Adam's transgression and the acquittal that comes to all men through Christ's act of righteousness. And then there's that second comparison, the comparison between the disobedience of Adam through which many were made sinners and the obedience of Christ through which many were made righteous. Now here's the question. And are you thinking it? I hope you're thinking it. When... Does a man become a sinner? Now, if you've been reading this along with me, it just seems to say that a man is a sinner when he's born of Adam. It's race. Does that sound like that to you? I remember I was pastoring a church, and I was really, that in, in Iowa Park, Texas, and I was really, you know, used to be real paranoid and what people were thinking. And I was real nervous. Had, a, had an evangelist one time. And he was ripping and tearing. And I was thinking, I'm fixing to get ripped and tear when, torn when he leaves. And the little kid started crying out in the audience. Margaret can remember this. Some little kid started crying. and Just kept crying, and she didn't take it to the nursery. And finally, he stopped, and he said, Lady, would you take that kid, get it out of here, get it to the nursery, and then he said this. He said, we shouldn't be surprised when little babies cry out in service because they're sinners. He said, you know what the Bible teaches? That we're born in sin and that because we are of the race of Adam, we're all sinners, he said, even little babies. And he said, that little baby is cutting up and crying. I mean, he's an infant because that little baby is a sinner. 
I thought I was going to die right there on the spot. <laughs> I thought I had it right then. What a theology. That's not, that's not that uncommon. Now, I'm going to read a little bit here, if you'll hang in with me, from my, the best professor I ever had in the seminary on the book of Romans. He says, We want to know how men were made sinners by Adam's disobedience. Was it because all men are seminally, that is, seminally present in the loins of Adam when he sinned, and thus we inherited his guilt? That's Augustine's theology. And out of that theology has come the doctrine of original sin, which is a primal doctrine in the Roman Catholic Church. And when you are born in, you know, as from a Roman Catholic parent, you're baptized immediately and absolved of original sin. Because Augustine's theology is that we were all seminally present in the loins of Adam, or was it because Adam, as the federal head of the race, cast the wrong vote in Edom, Eden, and so rendered all men guilty before God? That means that he represented all of us in Eden, and he cast the wrong vote, and so we all pay for it. Cosicius, the theologian, uh, espoused that. Quote Jack McGarman. We must affirm that there is no evidence for either of these theories of original sin in this passage. Indeed, a study of both Genesis 3, 1 through 24 and Romans 5, 12 through 21 reveals that neither passage explains how the effects of Adam's sin were transmitted to his descendants. <laughs> that helps a lot. In neither passage does it explain how it happened. So the answer is, how is it that Adam's sin affects me? I don't know. That's what he's saying. Good news. But listen, we do know, he said, about the other half of the analogy. Namely, how men are made righteous through Christ's obedience. Now watch this. If, if Adam is a type in reverse of Jesus, watch this. How does... A person gets saved. When Jesus died on the cross and He paid the price for us, did that automatically make you a Christian? Of course not. For all that Paul has been saying prior to this is that He died there, but we are saved or made righteous through our faith, our trust in, in Him and that. Does that mean then, on the other half of that analogy, that Adam's sin made you a sinner? I don't think so. Look, we know that the death of Christ on the cross does not automatically grant all men a right standing with God. In Romans 3, 24 and 25, Paul made plain that Christ's accomplishment on the cross avails for us only upon the basis of our faith in Him. We do not inherit salvation because of what Christ has done. Rather, by God's grace, we receive salvation through faith in Christ. 
we do not inherit salvation through Christ's obedience apart from our personal involvement in faith, nor do we inherit condemnation through Adam's disobedience apart from our personal involvement in sin. Can you say amen to that? I see you don't believe it. Dr. W.T. Connor, for many years professor of of theology at Southwestern Baptist Seminary put it this way, I'm no more individually responsible and hence guilty for what Adam did than I am for what Julius Caesar did, but I am affected in my life by, both, by what both did. Now, listen to me. If I can, I'm trying to see if I can put it the way I understand it. You're not a sinner because Adam sinned but you will sin because Adam sinned. And I think that what I mean by that is that because you're born of this race of Adam and because of his sin, you're born with a propensity, an inclination, a nature to sin. You are not a sinner because Adam sinned, but you will sin because Adam sinned. And you're not saved because Jesus died, but you will be saved if you trust in His death. That's what this is about. Now, really what this is about is not to try to you know, bring um, you know, some kind of riddle about what happened when Adam sinned. The, the whole thing is about the fact that man is in a terrible predicament and it is only by the triumphant grace of God that he'll ever get out of it. And so he begins, to, he begins to sum up this triumphant grace and he says, And the law came in that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, look at this, grace abounded all the more. That as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What he's saying is that sin has caused a terrible, terrible condition of condemnation and separation and only grace can accomplish triumph over it. But he, he wants us to see the triumphant nature of grace. Mel Trotter knew that. Mel Trotter gave his life in ministry to the down-and-outers in Chicago. He was a derelict himself, a glassy-eyed, stumbling derelict. He took the money that he was supposed to buy medicine for his little girl and bought booze with it, and so she died. And they put her in a casket and dressed her all up, and he stole her shoes off of her body and pocked them for more booze. And one night, stumbling down a street in Chicago, he passed by a rescue mission, heard them singing, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He stumbled into that rescue mission, walked down the aisle and said, I'm that wretch you're singing about. The reason why he could do that is because the man who wrote that song was a greater wretch than him. His name was John Newton. For seven years he grew up at the feet of his godly mother in England and she died. And after a little while he hit the streets and wandered around in the slums of London. Because he looked older than he really was, he lied about his age and joined the British Navy and he hated it and so he deserted and wound up on the northern coast of Africa and somehow got hooked up with a Portuguese family 
and they abused him. They would tie his hands behind his back and make him, make him eat like an animal. They said he was. And one day he walked out on the beach and saw a fire burning and he went over to it. Found out it was some men there who were slave traders. And they are docked on the, on, the, on the beach and he joined up with these slave traders hauling black men to America. And he worked his way up to a navigator and he became a navigator of that slave ship. And one night while he was in charge of the ship, he broke open these kegs of rum and let everybody have their fill and they all got drunk and he fell off the boat. The captain came up to find him floundering around in the water and he harpooned him. And he drug him on board with a harpoon in his stomach and left a scar the size of a man's hand from the rest of his life. Threw him down in the hull of the ship and somehow by the mercy and the grace of God, God found him there. He came out of the hull of that ship, went back to England, founded the Church of England, wrote the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. That's the super abundance of the grace of God. Now, it doesn't matter tonight, really, how you got lost, if you're lost. I was telling some of the guys the other day that it doesn't matter how much you owe if you can't pay it. I went down to Homeland, and Margaret sent me down to Homeland here not long ago to Gets a little some some stuff for the for supper, and I had emptied all my all my money out of my pocket, my change. Didn't have a check. Got about four dollars and fifty three cents worth of groceries. Went up. Everybody was hey, there's the pastor. Good to see you, pastor. You know, I mean, loud and clear. Everybody knew I was a pastor. First Baptist church. Went up to pay and didn't have a penny. <laughs> oh, great. Reached in my pocket. Didn't have a cent. Now I didn't owe much. First National Bank can tell you I owe a lot more than $4.53. I owe a lot of more debts than that. But it doesn't matter how much you owe if you can't pay it. It doesn't matter how much you sin if you can't pay the debt. You can't. It doesn't matter where it came from. I don't suppose if you inherited from Adam or whatever. That's not the issue. The issue is that somebody's paid the debt for you in full. And it doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are. The grace of God superabounds. Now there are two lessons. No way, the first is no way will you recover from the fall except through Christ. When I was um, seminary, we had these graders and they'd come in and they were the teacher's pets. They'd come in and call the roll and give tests and they'd grade the tests. And uh, we didn't necessarily think a whole lot of graders. And this grader came in one day and he was going to lead in prayer and he had the dumbest prayer. He said, Humpty Dumpty sat on the wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Lord, would you help us put together our broken lives? Amen. We went over to the coffee shop and laughed about it. Humpty Dumpty prayer. Wasn't a bad prayer. Except... When God comes in the mercy of grace, He doesn't just pick up the old pieces and glue them back together. He makes you a brand new creation, species of being, brand new. 
And there is no way to recover from the fall except through Christ. Second lesson. There is no way to handle the damage of the fall except through grace. Too much has happened. There's no way to handle the damage that's occurred in your life as a result of sin except by grace. And so you can write your own nursery rhyme. It would be something like this. Jesus Christ came to our wall. Jesus Christ died for our fall. So that regardless of death, in spite of our sin, through grace, He puts us together again. And some minister said that he heard um, Sperry, what's his first name, who used to be the professor of theology at Dallas Seminary, speak his last, teach his last class. On the last day of his last class, he said with trembling voice, choking back the tears, Gentlemen, I've spent all my life teaching about the grace of God and I'm just now beginning to understand it myself. Let's pray together. Father, I, I rejoice and give thanks and exult in the fact that you've made provision for our fall. We'd like to understand how it all happened, but we know we can in this life. What we can understand is, is that you came and died, rose again, that you offered that gift of grace to all of us. And that the worst and the least and the best of us all come to you the same way. That is through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh, how blessed is our Savior and Lord, who was so sinless and pure, good, endured the grief and the abuse of sinful man, gave his beard to be plucked, his face to be spat upon, his back to be beaten, his hands to the nails, his side to the sword, his brow to the thorn. He suffered for us. Oh, blessed Savior, blessed Lord. We know we're not worthy of the least of your favors. The only way to explain it all is that you loved us more than we love our sin. That your grace abounds for the lost. I pray tonight, dear Lord, that your death will avail for all of us. And that there are those tonight who, listening by television, or in this place would admit their need, their hopeless condition, their futile effort at righteousness, 
come by way of the cross, by way of Him, who is the way, the truth, and the life. For I pray in His name, for His sake.